Welcome to Shoot to the Top, a podcast for professional photographers with web designer and marketer Sam Holland and professional photographer with over 20 years in the industry, Marcus Ahmad. Well, hello listeners. This is Marcus at uh, Marcus from Shoot to the Top podcast and we've got a very special show for you today. There's no Sam. What can I say? I'm on my own actually on location they've let me out the studio and i am at the royal photographic society the rps based here just down the road from me in bristol and i'm interviewing dr michael pritchard we've got a great show lined up for you we're going to be talking all about the rps and michael's got an amazing career involved in the history and documentation of photography so let's pass over to michael and he can tell you all about himself and the rps Hi there. So thanks so much for inviting me to to talk here. It's um, it's always a treat to be able to talk about oneself and, and one's passions. I mean, photography has been something that I've been involved in really since I'm probably about 11 years old, 10 years old, maybe. Um, I, I mean, my story is probably like a lot of your listeners. Um, I I bought an old camera at a scout jumble sale and I got interested in the history of the camera and I started collecting some cameras then I met a, a local commercial studio a high street studio the the Greville brothers in Watford who, who ran this studio and they they encouraged my interest in the history but what that also did um, because I started working for them as a Saturday boy and during school holidays so what that also did was started to give me a grounding in commercial professional photography you know at the time this was in in the very late 70s early 80s um, and when photography was yeah in some ways at its peak in that sense you know they ran a studio they had the social side where they did weddings um, they had a did studio portraiture so people would come in for family sittings but they also had the commercial side and they would go out on location to shoot products with for people like Bosch and Sanyo and Answerphone some of the big brands at the time um, but they also did a lot of studio work um, using 5 by 4 cameras. So I got a good grounding in very practical photography. And then the other side was that they also had a black and white darkroom. And I learned how to print black and white and you know, doing 100 press prints and, and that sort of thing. So I was, I was doing lots of developing and printing, pro, um, hand processing, 5-4 cut film, um, 120 roll film, 35mm from all of the work that was going on, whether it's the social side or the commercial so it gave me a fantastic grounding and yeah I'm so grateful to the, the Greville brothers because it it really sparked my passion for photography and and they were incredibly generous in their time and for you know just letting me use the resources so I did some of my own studio work there I used the dark room to to do my own printing and processing so it's incredibly you know I mean, it's just unbelievable, really, to have that opportunity to use a do- proper dark room, properly set up, and not not the sort of classic cupboard under the stairs. So I think I was probably spoilt in many respects. So that started my photographic journey, and then I, I at various points I went off to university. Um, but photography was always there in the background for me. So I'd come back during the school holidays, go back to the the Greville's studio in Watford, um, pick up from where I left off, and and help out with them. 
and but also the the interest in photographic history was developing as well i i got interested in research so in 1979 i think it was i joined the rps the royal photographic society as a junior member and the reason i did that was that i wanted access to the historical group so one of these special interest groups of the society um, deals with the history of photography and i wanted to sort of meet other people and yeah really really learn from them and also look at the RPS's collection at that time. It was in South Audley Street in London in the Society's house. So I was just at the point where I, I could look at some of that material and particularly use the library. And then when the RPS moved from uh, London to Bath to the Octagon, I used to go down reasonably regularly to, wow. to use the library and, and look at the museum that you know, some, some of you might remember, um, the Octagon with the, the history of photography display of cameras and photographs around the, the sort of balcony of the Octagon. But the library and the collection were really what I was interested in. Um, and I, you know, I got involved with the historical group. I, they, they pulled me onto the committee. I think I brought the average age down quite, quite a lot. I mean, this is when I was in my teens and, and early 20s. Um, and then after I finished university, I was recruited by Christie's, who knew of my interest, so the auction house. Uh, and they, they'd known of my interest. I knew my predecessor at Christie's had asked me to do a, a small cataloguing job on a collection of early photographic lenses for him during the Easter vacation. And then he, he had then asked me if he wanted to, if I wanted to join Christie's in uh, when when university finished in July. And of course I said yes. You know, and he he then upped and left three months later. So I was sort of thrown in at the deep end. So I was really organising auctions of cameras, some photography, and then related areas like stereoscopes and magic lanterns all of those things that are around the edges of photography so I was organizing auctions um, cataloging meeting clients meeting all of these collectors who had so much knowledge and people were generous and they shared that knowledge with me and an auction house is it's just one of those places that you can learn so much because you're always handling material, there's always material coming in, um, you're talking to people, you're looking at collections and it gave me a great, great grounding in the history of photography and a very practical knowledge of camera. You know, I handled, I must I haven't ever counted, but it must be tens and tens of thousands of Leica cameras, for oh. example, or brass and mahogany cameras. So. You know, you get the opportunity to look at them, play with them a bit, you know, because you're cataloguing them. So you need to look at them closely. You need to check things like the shutters and the condition of them. So you have to look at them very closely and you are to start to understand how they work. And so I've, you know, I've, I have a small collection of cameras myself and I occasionally I put a roll of film into a, an old Leica and, or a Nikon F and just take some pictures with it. And you can't you can't beat it. I mean, I, digital, of course, is what I do do now mainly, but it's it's quite nice just from a nostalgic perspective to go back and look at a camera and think yeah I'm going to put a roll of film in that today and go off and um, take some pictures I, I don't have access to a darkroom unfortunately so that's done done remotely the processing side but you know actually this is the idea of a hybrid approach where you can get the scans back from your negatives and yes. you get the benefit of the digital side and the analog I think it's a great combination and realistically is very practical today for me as well so I was at Christie's for, what, about 20 years or so. And then I had the opportunity to, to go off and do a PhD in the history of photography. Um, so I spent three years doing that full time. 
Um, during the three years, I, I did a bit of consultancy for Christie's. And um, what else was I doing? I did some work at the British Library. So the British Library was given the, the Kodak archive. And I worked on the Kodak Historical Archive for the um, person responsible for photography. So I was organising that collection, cataloguing it, making it available for public access. So this is, in a way, that turned the tables because I, you know, I was now able to bring my own knowledge and experience and understanding of Kodak's history, which I'd, I'd gathered over the last 30 years and bring that to bear on the archive and put some put put that back into the archives to, to benefit other researchers. Right. So I was in, in the, the bowels of the British Library for three months. It's one of those places where you hear the tube trains rumbling above your head <laughs> <laughs> rather than below. So, you know, it's um it's an interesting experience in there. But it was a great opportunity and yeah, I handled some fabulous material. But the key thing is that, you know, the library saved that archive from potentially destruction. Some had already been lost at the point the library was able to to intervene and, and was offered the, the the archive but it's an incredibly important resource for photographic historians but also historians of business of design of graphic design and human relation you know human resources and all of these sorts of things because Kodak was such a such such a big company from the 1890s really up to the 1980s 2000s that you know it, it was leading the way on some of these things like computerization for example so there's all these different histories that that archive can tell you just beyond the the history of the camera or the photograph or the business of photography and that sort of brings us up to about oh I did some teaching by the way in at De Montfort University on the oh. the M MA history of photography uh, I was working on a module about the industry of photography that's sort of built on my knowledge and experience and then in 2011 so I'd just about finished the PhD uh, 2011 I was approached about applying for a role at the RPS that was being advertised at the time I'd seen the job ad come up and decided it maybe it wasn't really for me but um, they approached me um, I did some interviews and I was I accepted the role of chief executive at that time it was called director general of the RPS this was 2011 and I've been with the RPS ever since in 2018 that role was split into two um, for so it became a COO role and director of programs so I took the director of programs which you know, kept me sort of hands-on with student groups and engaging with people rather than perhaps the more administrative work and dealing with trustees so I'd had you know I'd had what uh, seven eight years of that and uh, I think I'd, I moved the RPS forward during that time but I think I felt I wanted to really stay with the education side and the program side and I knew also that we were about to move to a new building so it was an opportunity to start developing the exhibitions program um, the the public programs that we we needed to deliver within this much bigger building that we're sitting in today so I, I opted to do that, and so I've been with the RPS, um, what, 12 years, just over 12 years now. Well, I am just sitting here absolutely gobsmacked. If there's anybody who's an expert, Michael, in photography, it's got to be you. What a career you have had. I mean, I've just written notes here. 1979 is when you started being involved with the RPS, 
and here we are in 2023. Some, I can't even do the maths now. What's that? It's like 50. Is, that, is it really? No, no, it can't be. It can't be. Eight, 40 years. 40 years. I mean, that is incredible. Okay, that's a fantastic. And obviously, we're going to be, if we've got time, we'll dive into your background and the, uh, working at Christie's. But maybe, yeah, now it's time to talk a little bit, a bit, a bit more about what the RPS does for photographers. So a lot of you probably know of the RPS. It's one of those organisations that sort of is, well, we've been here for, what, 180 odd years or so. So I think most people probably have heard those letters RPS or maybe have come across the RPS's distinctions, the fellowship, associate, licentiate, or seen those letters after the names of you know, everyone from David Bailey to, you know, the high street photographer or some of those people working within photography or in, in the education sector. So I think there's, there's a lot of people that know of the RPS but probably don't know what it is or, and what it does so in this is perhaps the elevator pitch I guess to okay. some extent <laughs> so the RPS is a registered charity um, so we have to do things for the public benefit but the, we're also a membership organization so we, we obviously provide services and benefits for our members I mean I suppose in essence we're we're in a, we're we're about education ultimately we want to help people um, develop their own skills their practical skills their creativity and ultimately help them produce the best photography that they can do or want to do and it doesn't matter whether that's sort of fine art photography um, documentary um, or commercial work so we're, we're developing a partnership at the moment with a professional body um, so that I think we'll see the the professional side of the RPS expand and grow um, during 2024 and onwards. Um, at the moment most of our members are amateur, um, we also have people that are photographers of course um, working commercially but also we have people that work with photography so they're educators, they're perhaps working in a picture library, they're engaging with photography in some other way so we are this very broad organisation and I think that's what differentiates us from say your local camera club or photo Graphic society so a lot of our members are members of both and they bring you know each organization brings a different um, different uh, it, it sort of helps people develop different parts of their photography um, whether it's the more social side or some of the skills but um, for a lot of our members the distinctions those letters after their name are what people want to get uh, and that's you know we spend a lot of time making sure that that process is rigorous and we support people going through that journey and there's going to be some big changes coming along in 2024 that will further help that and we're doing a lot of work on our practical workshops for example to help them align with the distinctions process so that we we encourage and support people on their own photographic journal journey whichever way that happens to take them um, which has taken me completely off what I where I started off from now but um, so going back to to the RPS as an organization so I mean our, our strap line is about photography for everyone you know, it doesn't matter whether you're a smartphone user taking pictures on your your phone or whether you're just someone interested in photography or you know more and this is perhaps more relevant to most of our members they're taking their photography 
photography a bit more seriously. They want to develop their skills and, and creativity, um, either just for their own interest or benefit, or from a commercial perspective as well. So, yeah, we, we are this broad organisation. We publish a journal, for example, which is the world's oldest photography journal. We were just downstairs in our resource room a few minutes ago and saw all these rows of volumes back to 1853. So it's the world's oldest photography magazine. Um, yeah, and again, from me as a historian, it's an incredibly important insight into the issues that were engaging photographers in the 19th century and some of those are still with us today. Things like copyright for example, very much a live subject particularly with AI coming on at the moment but that was engaging our forebears back in the 19th century. Um, education, how we train photographers and give them those skills, that was something that was being discussed in the, the RPS's journal pages and also yeah, that big debate about whether photography is an art or science and the relationship between the two. Now, I'd sort of like to think we've probably got beyond that. Now I think most people would accept photography can be both. It is an art, but also there's a scientific aspect to it as well. So, and I think yeah, that debate was yeah, a pretty live one for a lot of the RPS's history, but I think now yeah, society is, is quite accepting of photography as both an art form and there's some that can be used as a tool for science, for research and for you know, looking at the world in a, in a very different way. Um, so that was the journal. Uh, in the building that we're sitting in at the moment in Bristol, uh, we do a lot of public events, we, we hold conferences, so we've just done a conference on AI for example, but we, we hold other conferences, we put photographers on, we have talk series with photographers talking about their practice their, and their work. We do a lot of work with the local universities actually, the University of the West of England, UWE come in regularly, Boomsat Sumer is a local education provider, Bath Spa, University of South Gloucestershire, University of South Wales, all of the local univers universities tend to come in and um, one of the big draws for them is not simply the auditorium and hearing photographers talk but it's also the ability to see the exhibition that we put on. So when we moved into this building in 2019 um, it gave us two big things that we didn't have in Bath. That was the auditorium with good audio, good, good um, um, projection so we could do public events in a, in a really good way and the exhibition space. So we have a, a very active exhibitions program and that brings the students in and either myself or a colleague will end, often end up talking to them about some of the ideas behind the exhibition. Those might be practical skills about how you put on an exhibition particularly when those students are coming up to their end-of-year degree shows and projects well, or it might be some of the thinking behind some of the work that they're looking at you know why are photographs looking like they are what are the stories that those pictures are trying to tell and the I mean for me our international photography exhibition is a great exhibition because it's made up of about a hundred images but the stories behind them are extremely diverse they really it's a very contemporary exhibition in that sense so it you know the themes it can cover I mean this this year is everything from climate change to you know fine art photography but also social issues around um, deprivation um, 
relationships between you know single fathers for example so there's a whole range of social issues that the the photography picks up and i think it highlights for me the power of photography and the other thing about the the exhibition also is that it's the world's oldest exhibition because it has its origins back to the society's um, beginnings in 1853. The first edition was held in 1854 and we're just about to open the, let me get this right, the 165th edition. So it changes every year. We change the selectors every year so it remains contemporary and always has a different look and feel because of the types of people that end up selecting. As, as we know, photography, you know, it can be subjective, and but people bring their own interests, influences, prejudices sometimes to that, that selection process. And as a result, the exhibition always remains engaging. So when we bring those students in you know, each year, if, if they're in their third year, they'll see a completely different uh, edition of that exhibition to their first and second years with different themes, different photographers and different subjects that those pictures uh, are showing to them so they can engage with it really well and, and either use that for their own inspiration or use it as a jumping off point to, to help them develop their own practice as they you know, maybe leave university and go into the, the commercial world. And I think that's the power of the exhibitions and some of the things that we do here that we, we're about inspiring people, we're about helping them create their own work in, in the way that they want to. And the other thing about the RPS we shouldn't forget is it's a it's a community of people that we've got you know sort of 10 roughly about 10,000 members mostly in the UK but there's a big community in Asia for example um, some of the English speaking parts of the world so there's this this there's this community of photographers and people interested in photography that can talk to each other learn from each other and actually just enjoy each other's company you know the social side I think is a really important part of photography photography as we know you know if you're working as a photographer or teaching photography it can be quite isolating in some ways so to be be able to go to a meeting and see other people talk to them over a drink or a coffee whatever um, it's it's something that the RPS can offer and I think that's also where you know the local camera clubs and photographic societies score as well that they they hold regular meetings so they they bring that community side to it and a social side to photography and I think we we shouldn't forget that photography is meant to be fun as well it's something we, we sometimes and I'm probably guilty as guilty as anyone that you we can sometimes take it a bit too seriously but there's you know it's, it should be fun we should be enjoying our photography as well as you know, using it either as a career or from a commercial side, you know, we should get some pleasure from it. And I like to think that most of our members are staying as members because we're giving them something that gives them pleasure, as well as helping them you know, along their own journey. Well, that is absolutely fantastic. I mean, there's so a couple of things that I really picked up on there. You talked about the fun of photography there, and yes, of course, we must. That is so important and easy to forget. And also, you talked about the power of photography and, and the power of the image, and I think that's another really something that I am always banging on about. Um, I come here, I'm very lucky I can come very easily and visit here for a cup of coffee on the weekends and look at a gallery space, but I had no idea the vast range and the benefits that the RPS has to the photographic community. Absolutely brilliant. Um, you've obviously been, as, as a studier of photography uh, and the history of it, we've seen many developments within 
the genre uh, we've seen, you know, from obviously from the beginning, glass negatives onto paper and then from uh, onto roll film from 10 by 8 sheets. We've seen Polaroid. We've seen digital cameras come along. We've seen lots of changes. But fundamentally, fundamentally, photography has changed, has stayed the same. But as you've mentioned, uh, we are seeing some big changes on the horizon with AI. Now, as you said, you've just recently had a, a debate here uh, about the future of photography and AI. I would love to see, we've got a few minutes left on the show, about three or four minutes. I'd love for you to just tell us, if you can, what were the outcomes of that debate? Oh, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a big ask. Um, I suppose... I suppose in some ways the outcome was that I think we're still trying to understand what the impact of AI is going to be on photography. Now for the RPS, we've we've set out a statement which you can see on our website. So if you, if you go to rps.org forward slash AI, you'll see a statement that we published earlier this year. Now we said at the time we, we issued that, it was very much... Um, at a point in time that we could say certain things and that as AI evolved that statement would be updated and would need to be revised but I think um, I think where do we go from here Um, so I think generative AI let's break it down shall we Um, I think generative AI is something that we do struggle with and I think in terms of our own exhibitions and uh, distinctions absolutely then generative AI is not something that at the moment we we see firstly we don't see it as photography Um, and I think there's you know there's obviously big issues around um, intellectual property rights around how machine learning has has is, has worked and and has taken people's work and is is pushing that back out. Um, so you know our, I suppose the starting point for us is that if you're entering one of our exhibitions or producing work for the, our distinctions, then that work has to be yours. It can't be machine generated. So that's one end of a spectrum. If we move a little bit along that spectrum, perhaps to the midpoint, there's this sort of intermediate point where AI is informing your photography, um, whether it's through um, some of the enhancements that's coming through your smartphone, for example, so boosting contrast or sort of things like HDR. Um, So AI is already in your phone anyway. Um, But it's also in in your camera. It's in your... um, the type of software that you you use for processing your work, whether that's Photoshop, Affinity, whatever, it's already there. Um, And again, I think for us then, I think depending on what that is, I mean, parts of it like um, auto focus tracking, um, for example, I think, you know, that's that's fine. I mean, there's clearly no issue with that because it's a tool to help with with following a subject. Um, some of the, the 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 other processing again, I think for the most part we're we're reasonably comfortable with some of that. But if you're talking about bringing in um, extending a background, well, actually, I'm not sure we've quite decided what we see about that. If it's bringing a, in another sky that doesn't an artificial sky, 
that's clearly not acceptable to us at the moment because firstly it's not your work um, but then there's this uh, further point where if you bring that sky in but it's learnt from your skies you know is that acceptable or not and I think the, you know, some of these nuances now we're going to have to start grappling with and I think next year and the year after you know, increasingly we're going to have to come up with a position that's ideally consistent but also lets people know you know what our viewpoint is on these sorts of things so the AI conference aired some of these issues I think it it probably posed more questions than it was able to answer but also it showed to me you know that photographers and I think there's a danger sometimes of seeing AI as, as this tool that's going to impact on particularly the professional creative world of photography adversely but actually a lot of photographers a lot of creatives are already, already using AI in their practice so I don't think we can be protectionist about it we can't um, I know some of the other bodies that we work with are concerned about the impact on their members jobs and I think you know it's a legitimate concern but I think you know the the the, the gene is out of the box you we we have to work with it and i think we need to see the opportunities and make sure that you know, our members and those members of professional bodies uh, are there maybe using it and, and are they're using it first uh, and within certain parameters of course and uh, so yeah i think you know we we need to embrace ai and you know, if we don't do it one of the other creative industries will do and i think for me you know photography could legitimately um, embrace it photographers can leg legitimately embrace it as part of their practice in the way that they did with digital photography in the late 90s and early 2000s of course it's it's different and it's a it's perhaps an even bigger jump than we saw at that point but I think there's opportunities and I think I, I suppose I'm a, a, an optimist usually um, I think we need to see the opportunities it offers rather than look at the negatives because we can't push it back into that box it's here it's going to become an even bigger part of our lives um, and certainly within imaging and photography you know we it's never going to go away now it's going to be with us so let's let's take advantage of the benefits it offers let's deal with things like um, some of the IP issues some of the the machine learning issues and you know, deal with some of those some of the um, issues around knowing what's real what's fake you know do we do we do we have to mark images that are made up of AI or not you know some of these debates are kicking off at the moment so let's deal with some of these those issues but let's see it as an opportunity for creativity and you know bring see it as a, again another hybrid process that can support photography rather than see it as a threat to photography because I think that if we see it as a threat and try and hide it and push it away actually that would be the death knell for photography because it will it's there with us so uh, there's a there's the, you know we could be have a whole podcast on yes. on AI I've just been come back from China a few weeks ago where I was talking about this and what's interesting is that I think in some ways our thinking within the RPS and in the UK is is a little bit further along this and we saw from some of the the other people at the the conference in China and and I think they're still trying to grapple with some of this I think we've our thinking's a bit more advanced but also you know some of these same issues that we're we're experiencing here uh, were being aired and discussed by the speakers from China, from Europe, from other parts of the world as well. So, you know, let's talk about it and then work out the, what's the right way forward that will protect people's skill sets and give them the creative, you know, allow them to use it from a creative perspective that will enhance their photographic practice. So let, let's try and be optimistic about it. <laughs>
Thank you. And I think that's a great way to end the show. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for taking your time out of your busy schedule and coming on our show. It's been really entertaining for me, really enjoyable. I've learned so much more about the RPS and I really hope uh, our listeners out there have enjoyed the show as well. Thank you so much for that. It's, a, it's always great to talk about the RPS and oneself. So um, I've enjoyed it and um, let's try and do it again at some point. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. You can like and subscribe on your usual podcast platform. You can find Sam and Marcus on LinkedIn and at websiteforphotographers.co.uk forward slash podcast. See you next week. Thank you.